Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. Just in time for the end of this month, the end of this year, and the end of this decade, at least on the Western calendar. I don't have any sort of like housekeeping things to talk about on this side of the episode, so let me get right to introducing this month's guest. Prabhadeep Singh Kehal is a brilliantly insightful person about so many subjects, but they're also not afraid to recognize when there are things they do not know. In a culture in which conversations are carried out like competitions, and ignorance is shamed instead of being welcomed as a learning opportunity, Prabhdeep advises us to start from a place of admitting what we do not know, especially when we are attempting to cultivate real conversations about religions, cultures, and communities that are different from our own. I am currently reading a book called Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others by Christian author Barbara Brown Taylor. Every few pages, she says something that reminds me of a thing that Prabhdeep and I talked about. And I wanted to read a passage from Taylor's book that sums up a lot of what I was feeling during my conversation with Prabhdeep. In the passage, Taylor discusses an image of the Hindu god Shiva that, to Christians, might look unnerving. Shiva dances in a ring of fire on the back of a little creature that looks a little bit like a child and he has snakes curled around his right arm and his waist. A Christian might see that and think of hellfire, of the wily serpent of Eden, of a cruel god making a child his footstool. But, Taylor says, when we are willing to take off our own religion's glasses and see the image through Hindu glasses, the image becomes less fearsome. Here's the quote from her. The ring of fire is the eternal cycle of creation and destruction. Dancing inside of it, Shiva reminds the viewer that the god who presides over death clears the way for new life. The creature under his feet is not a child but a demon, signifying the ignorance that trips people up and keeps them down. Shiva holds a drum in one of his hands, a flame in another. With his other two hands, he makes ancient gestures that mean seek refuge and fear not. The fact that we need so much help understanding what we are looking at is a lesson in itself. How often do we assume we know what we are seeing when we see other people practicing their faith? When I think I see a Buddhist worshiping a statue of the Buddha, I yield to the Buddhist when he tells me that he is not worshiping the Buddha but honoring the Buddha's example. When I think I see a Muslim woman constrained by her headscarf, I listen when she tells me how hard she fought to wear it against her family's wishes. As natural as it may be to try to translate everything into my own religious language, I miss a lot when I persist in reducing everything to my own frame of reference. End quote. Throughout Holy Envy, Taylor expresses her desire that we all might realize our view of the world is colored by whatever unique lenses we have, and that our point of view is not the only point of view out there, is not the only correct way of viewing the world or viewing the divine. As you listen to this episode, 
Consider what beautiful things could happen if we all committed to taking off our own pair of glasses every now and then, with a willingness to look through the lenses of others from time to time. As I talked to Prabdeep, I felt like they were giving me that chance, the chance to peer through their glasses for a while. And what I saw has enriched and transformed how I think about things like queerness and colonialism, fear and faith. So thanks for having me. My name is Prabdeep Singh K. Hall. I'm a, currently a PhD candidate in sociology. I study legacies of colonialism and slavery in the U.S. context, uh, specifically as it pertains to how it is that universities still operate within those legacies. Mm. So I have a, a lot of questions. My projects think about sort of the space of universities and what they do in society and how do we understand their impact if we actually understand the lineage and their history rather than sort of just this post-civil rights moment mm. of what higher education is all about. Um, I use they and them pronouns. They are my pronouns. Uh, as I usually tell people, if they get confused, you're more than welcome to refer to me by my first name, Prabhdeep. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. If you're talking about me in third person, uh, please do use they and them pronouns. Mm -hmm. And that is about, that. that's what takes up my time most of the day. This semester, I'm teaching a class for undergraduates, which has been a really fun experience. And I have been fighting the weather here in the New England area, which has consistently wanted to be gloomy and sad and dark, oh. but the sun is out today. So clearly oh, this was meant to happen today. <laughs> oh, yay. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Also, I am sick. Lots of people often refer to it as, as Sikh or Sikhism. Uh, mm -hmm. The proper pronunciation is sick. It's not like, quote unquote, offensive. It's just, it's more accurate yeah. uh, to say sick rather than Sikh. But, you know, people say all of the versions and mm -hmm. I use Sikhi as a way to refer to my faith rather than Sikhism. Mm -hmm. uh, folks use both, but I use Sikhi because it's again, more culturally appropriate and for sort of our faith in the indigenous context that it emerged in. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like once you add ism, you have sort of this Western idea going on. It, it becomes very institutional in a way yeah. that like, Philosophy. This is something that I tell folks all the time. There was recently uh, a conversation that just someone was describing basically the various traditions within Sikhi as denominations, and <laughs> I had to sort of push back. And I was like, I understand what you're trying to say about you know there are different denominations within Christianity, and they yes. all have sort of their separate beliefs. Mm -hmm. But those denominations arose from very specific historical political moments that yeah. made them denominations. Yeah. We don't have that history. So we uh, we have different cultural practices based off of sort of where folks live and their own diaspora, refugee mm. or migratory status and history. But none of those, I would say, would constitute something that would be like a Western Christian like denomination. That's good to know. Thank yeah, you. Of course. So yes, uh, to support your point, like you said, the ism adds sort of this... Um, other viewpoint to it. Yeah. And I think that's a problem in at least the United States and probably you would know better than me, the whole, I would assume most of sort of the West and Eurocentric um, societies that we want every religion to look like Christianity. Mm. And that's just not, you know, like just because our cultural lens and I say our meaning like, because I come, I'm Christian, I'm mm. white, 
Um, I'm, you know, a United States citizen. So mm-hmm. for all my lenses have taught me that I am the norm mm-hmm. and therefore I can view every other religion the way I view Christianity and talking to people like you um, and people from other like faiths that are not Christianity, it becomes very clear that that just doesn't make sense. Yes, um, that's yeah, exactly so. it. And I think you're you're right in the sense that, and it's not even just folks in the West, because of sort of the US and Europe or just English speaking countries, their dominance, both yeah. economically and socially um, and politically worldwide, English yeah. becomes the currency, right? In order mm. to have communication across different communities or cultures or religions or faiths. And because so much of globally what is understood as Christianity happens in English, it becomes the reference point. I would even hear like Sikhs describe Sikhi through the lens or in relation to Christianity, right? Like in the example of denominations. And again, that's because it's one of the few ways that people can actually make legible statements. And I think Mm -hmm. you're right. That's sort of the, that's part of the issue, right? Is that that sort of baseline already cuts off so much and it becomes very hard to quote unquote reinsert those uh, other ways of being after you've started with sort of the uh, the Christian and particularly like the UK US version of Christianity mm-hmm. um, as the base point reference. Yeah. Yeah. I think just like I have studied very briefly, like kind of in an overview of a lot of different religions, mm-hmm. I have studied um, Sikhi as like as written by an outsider who was not Sikh mm-hmm. and so I thought I knew things about Sikhi you know um just like general sort of very shallow things and uh-huh. then in preparation for your interview I started watching a YouTuber whose name whose name I forget but he is actually a Sikh and uh-huh. his descriptions of what Sikhi is were so different from that textbook I had read that was very much like a Eurocentric like it was written mm-hmm. by some guy who's not a Sikh it, it just it, it's such a different nuance. Like the concepts are, you know, it wasn't like the textbook was wrong. Yeah. It just wasn't from the right perspective. It was like you said, it was using all the language that you would expect from, you know, someone who like, it, it was just different language. Yeah. Um, um, there was, I remember a conversation with my ex at one point where I was trying to describe a particular sort of orientation towards, um, it's our living scripture, the Shri Guru Granth Sahib. It's we are practice and believe that it is the eleventh living Guru, our teacher, mm-hmm. um, because no other teachers are coming, and the knowledge has been passed down between the ten, and it is embodied within now the eleventh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of times, you will hear people describe it as like their favorite book. You know, they'll talk about like, oh, my favorite poems are in there, mm-hmm. and in some sense, it's like not technically like I know actually technically it is wrong but uh-huh. in some sense like I understand where they're coming from because I was trying to describe to my ex one time about like how the it, it calling it a book is wrong it is a living entity and yeah. we see it as a book and I understand that that's how you view it and mm-hmm. when we bow our head to it people outsiders may be thinking like why are you bowing your head to a book isn't that just idolatry which you know, Sikhi is supposed to denounce and not yeah. practice idolatry. But, it, you know, it becomes very important where, you know, some people may be treating the Guru Granth Sahib as a book and when they bow their head before it, they are treating it like an idol. And mm-hmm. then there are people who, like me and other folks who understand sort of 
that it is the living body. It is the living word of our Lord. Um, and even using the word Lord itself is incorrect. You know, <laughs> that is incorrect for me yeah. to say, technically speaking. Yeah. But even trying to explain that sort of like what it means to be a living entity, even though you view it as something physical, it, it's very hard to explain. And I, I, I think now he understands and other people may yeah. understand. But if you don't sort of start from the perspective of there are things that I will not understand, but I'm about to learn, it becomes very hard to have any sort of conversation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like, as you're talking, I can feel my brain trying to use like my sort of my own faith lens to understand it, like say, oh yeah, we consider the Bible a living document, but then that word document is against what you're saying that your 11th guru is to you. It's not a document. And and Mm -hmm. like, and so I can feel my brain like, you know what I mean? Like I'm yeah, trying uh, automatically. My brain is like, oh yeah, I'm going to compare it to my, like to the Bible, the Christian uh, Bible. Yeah. And then um, another part of my brain is like, no, that's what we don't want to be doing right now. Um, so thank you for like, I just, I love getting to hear from your point of view to remind me to always be challenging that part of my brain that automatically wants to put my own lens on things. Um, yeah. And it's to not know. easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to cut you off, but it is not easy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I could never envision a version of, or the Guru Granth Sahib being in like the drawer of a hotel globally. Mm. Oh yeah, like we do it, yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be beyond disrespectful. I mean, maybe within Christian communities that is a conversation that's happening, but like if anyone were even suggested, everyone would be like, oh no, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. That is, n- you do not, that is not a book. The Guru is not yeah. a book, you know? You don't, you don't just shove it in a drawer and let people who might not know how to respect it just kind of grab it and use it like as a notepad or something like exactly yeah and and, you know and you can only really understand that if you free yourself like in sociology or just in like the academy we call Mm -hmm. this sort of like ontological shifts ontology like what are the assumptions that we have about the social world Mm -hmm. that hold up our view of the social world so sort of the things that we don't think about that make everything sort of make sense right Mm. trying to understand the the written texts of various faiths on the same level is already in some sense doing ontological violence to certain faiths yeah they are not on the same level as some others and that's not a hierarchy situation that's a that's a sense of like no, you are changing, you are, you yeah. are stripping, you're actually exploiting this in order to us, in order to make us legible to you. Mm. And it's like those kinds of things. So what you're saying, yeah, it's very hard to stay open and willing to even hear sort of those sorts of perspectives yeah. uh, because it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I'm so into this conversation already. Um, <laughs> and it like studying it from ontology, like mm. it reminds me of queerness as well. You know, the way when you're cishet, like, you're trying to, for instance, like, a so-called same-sex marriage isn't exactly the same. Like, there's always this attempt to be like, oh, yeah, gay people are just like us. They're just, you know, like, like, actually, like, queer people are actually different. And then even the language for queerness and, like, acronyms like LGBT, I know that those are sort of, like, those are Western too, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if I were going to go to um, other cultures and try to talk about queerness, it might like I would again have to ex- be ready to see like to accept that their idea of what queerness is is different from my own. Like, yes. Yes. Yeah. No, and I think a, a per- two great examples of that is um, 
So I recently, in Punjab, which is where my family is from and my people are from originally, though the diaspora is large, um, recently, I think in the, this might be like the first year or maybe like it's been now officially three years, they had a pride parade within mm. Punjab. And I think they had like two maybe, and they were in like very big Punjabi Sikh areas, right? Uh-huh. And part of me was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. This is so exciting. And then the other side of me was like, wait, hold on. I know what pride means in the U.S., given mm. sort of, you know, it started with uh, black and brown trans folks, sex workers, and yes. people who are poor fighting back for their rights, you know, being like, no, you must treat us as human regardless of what you feel about us. And that then got, you know, over the time but the sexual liberation movement got co-opted by corporations and all yeah. that stuff. And now we have pride where it is today. Mm. And in my mind, I'm like, how ha- have we exported pride to mm. areas where even the cons, like one can have pride in their identity, but the idea of showing that pride in this particular way through a parade that, you mm. know, w- displaying certain things like the rainbow colors, like is, is, does that make sense with what yeah. maybe this community would have done? Because within my own community, like, this is a big conversation about, like, within the U.S.-based or even just, like, quote-unquote Western um, epistemologies around queerness. So, like, ways of being in the world, right? As, yeah. as, uh, for those who don't know what epistemologies mean, like, being, quote-unquote, out was never, it's not a thing that's discussed. It's a very sort of double bind because a lot of people actually don't feel the need to be, like, have that coming out moment with their family within South Asian communities. Oh, okay. Part of that is because they don't want to come out. Part of it is because everyone sort of knows and this idea of the, you know, the coming out moment is itself a constructed moment, right? The idea that we have to come out of the closet. For some people, they're already out of the closet and they don't need it to be named. Other folks say, no, you're still in the closet, so you're still ashamed of yourself. It's like you were saying, it becomes, when you go into other communities and you talk about queerness, there are different languages you have to learn, right? And in the second example, like, I don't know if you watch um, the most recent iteration of Queer Eye and how they were, I believe, in Korea most recently. Oh, really? Wow. I'm I'm behind. I've watched some of the new stuff but yes i i want to say it was korea but i might be wrong it uh, might have been a different area a country in southeast asia or eastern asia Uh, but what they were saying in a conversation was one of the the folks that they were um, helping out had said that they hadn't come out yet and that wasn't you sort of saw this conversation within the person of like they feel like they're supposed to come out and Mm -hmm. they this person felt very much they had a long distance boyfriend i think in like europe somewhere maybe germany or something Mm -hmm. and you know there was this constant sense of like when i'm with him i'm free when i go over there i'm free i can't be that here and part of that is like structural state violence that doesn't let queer people be safe in public and the other part of it is this idea of like positioning being out as the only form of being queerly valid is Mm. another issue that isn't it doesn't it doesn't hold up across all cultures right some people don't want to come out and that's not a sense of shame it's just they don't need that and if they want to get married with a guy or a girl or whomever one day that'll be the conversation you know that we don't have space for this within a lot of the western queer epistemologies because the focus is on quote-unquote coming out and Mm quote-unquote being your authentic self without any conversation of what that means wow yeah that is such a good point that's really interesting mm-hmm. and of, of course their stigma plays a part in people not sure. wanting to come out right so this isn't like mm-hmm. 
this isn't anything of like absolute statements. This is more so of like, there are levels here. And Mm -hmm. until folks who are Western based are able to acknowledge levels within their queer yeah. epistemologies yeah. <laughs> where, yeah, we end up creating this sense of like, if you're not out, you hate yourself. And yeah. that's just like to go from the being in the closet and hearing that, that's just like, how, like, how are you supposed to find joy within that? Yeah, absolutely. There's this sense of like obligation and shame. Yeah. And like the only reason I speak openly about these things is because I came across sort of quote unquote coming out as something that I was supposed to do. Mm. And in my case, I did it and I I lucked out in the sense of like, it was authentic in the sense of like, I did want it to be named. I didn't want to pretend like it wasn't a thing because that wasn't how my family worked. Mm -hmm. So it made sense for my context, right? So as a result, because I'm able to be out in this way and be able to speak on these things, I feel like that is how I see the function of my visibility, right? As mm-hmm. doing something, creating more space for people who don't want to be visible, but nonetheless deserve the safety and security and the love of queer communities and trans communities, you know, regardless yes. of their visibility status. Yes, yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned like your family. Um, one thing I wanted to at least kind of mention if you're open to it is just sort of like, what is your family like? Um, mm-hmm. The way I found you is um, an interview you did with um, Wussy online. Yeah. Um, and one thing you mentioned with them is that you grew up with this idea. At some point, you learned the idea that you couldn't be both sick and queer. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're open to it, I would love more details about like that. Like, who was it that gave you that idea? And how did you sort of come to realize otherwise over time? Yeah, so that's a great question. And this actually follows really nicely with what the double bind that we were just talking right. about, right? Yeah. So in many cases, being the way I describe it to people is that within uh, at least the South Asian communities I'm in, being queer is taboo. And the moment that you're saying that you're out, you're violating a taboo, so you immediately mm. must be quashed. But at the same time, with the way the taboos work is that everyone knows what they are, but no one discusses them, right? Mm. So we don't exist, and the moment we try to exist, we're immediately squashed. So you, you're in this very sort of weird dynamic where people sort of know of people who are like this, Mm-hmm. Though them claiming autonomy and agency is not, quote unquote, the norm, or at least that's not what people culturally remember. Obviously, our ancestors were fighting for themselves in their own ways. But mm-hmm. the idea, you know, that they just sort of like let themselves be erased um, is a very sort of like frustrating one that people within our communities bring up, at least in the South Asian queer communities. I say all that because that kind of serves as like the context in which I grew up, where I didn't even know queerness was a thing. So I had my first crush on a boy and I just thought that that is just normal. When you're in fourth grade, you get a crush on someone, that's normal. My crush just happened to be on someone who was a boy, right? Mm -hmm. So like in my mind, I didn't hear taboo. I didn't see anything. I didn't think anything was wrong with that. I just kept it to myself because you don't tell people about your crushes because it'll come (laughs) back and bite you in the ass, you know? Yes, yeah, yeah. So I just, I went through like my elementary school years. I really started noticing my uh, queer identity around like third, fourth grade. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until seventh grade that someone actually like point blank asked me about Mm -hmm. like, oh, is that just your voice? Or 
something else. And I was like, I didn't even know how to interpret that question. Yeah. And it was so fascinating because throughout, from that moment on, all the way until I graduated high school, my voice was the constant thing that everyone wanted to use to interrogate my queerness. Mm, yeah. Like, and it was just so fascinating. I mean, retrospectively, it was so fascinating. While I was experiencing it, it was not particularly yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I'm sure, um, I'm sure that sucked because it's part of you that you can't really hide. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, yeah. put on a gruff voice when I'm answering a <laughs> question? Like, who does that? So all of that to say, I had always, my family had not been particularly active or within the religious faith communities when I was growing up. Like we were okay. sort of like casual passerbyers, you know, we call, uh, we're, we shouldn't call them this, but like we were Sunday six. We, we went there, we did, we stayed part of the service. We took part in the community kitchen and then we left and there's nothing wrong with that. It was more so like that was the extent of our engagement. Mm-hmm. So it was really, I remember vividly, um, it was, if you're familiar with the California Prop 8 sort of marriage uh, proposition, that was back, I want to say, it was in the late 2000s, I, I want to say like 7, 8, or 9, or something like that. And the person who is in charge of we our place of worship is called a gurdwara, um, literally means doorway to the Lord, uh, passageway to the Lord, to, to the guru, I should say, not to the Lord. And the leader of the board invited like he for the first time spoke and said that like it as six we should vote for this because we believe in the sanctity of marriage as between a man and a woman and I was like I mm. never heard that before I was like what this <laughs> like oh a- we believe that okay I was like I was not familiar with this this was not yeah. my understanding of things yeah. because I didn't I, the way I've talked about it in the past, it was like, I didn't see a problem. Other people made it a problem, yes. right? Yeah. I was kind of just existing. And then all of a sudden people are like, that's wrong. And I was like, I don't understand. Can you explain? And they're like, no, that's just wrong. And I was like, that's <laughs> it just how. is. It yeah. just is. And yeah. I was like, well, I just am. So there we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was really the first time. And that sort of like set me off. And then, cause that happened like right before college. So I kind of just fractured my relationship with my faith because that mm. felt very, at that moment, I had sort of like started coming out to friends already in high school. So for me, I was starting to claim my queerness and I didn't have any sort of active relationship with my Sikhi. So it wasn't the sense of I was choosing one over the other. It was sort of like they were both coming up in their own speeds, their own like maturations, right? Mm. And then someone said that the two can't be together. And I was like, well... I fall asleep when I go to Gurdwaras on Sunday and <laughs> when I talk about queerness with my friends, I, I don't feel like I'm in pain. So yeah. I was forced into a choice and, mm-hmm. you know, my path is my path and I don't regret my path. So like I distanced myself from my faith and I went off to college and I just really engaged with people who were not of my faith because I was, I was also in state. So I was afraid and we're a very small community. So I was afraid of anything me, I would do would get back to my family because they're a very insular community as well. So all of that to say is that sort of framed um, this idea that my faith and my identity could not be synonymous. But it was actually meeting with other sort of college going, college age six, so basically folks who who were past 18, um, and starting to engage with them and the sort of youth organizing they were doing in the Sikh community. That's really when I started seeing that actually the, the, 
choice that had been forced onto me was just one path. It was not the path. That wasn't mm-hmm. the only Sikhi out there. Um, and today I would say that's not even Sikhi, that's just hate. So I started finding other pathways of people who are not only affirming my identity, but also helping me understand Sikhi in a different light, in a way that was uh, holistic and geared towards the uplift of the people, the uplift of the oppressed, really tying us back to our history and the lessons and using that as a way to guide us onto the path that we're quote unquote supposed to follow, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of my history and making sense of these different experiences. And like my family, my sisters have been wonderful. They've always sort of been with it and understanding. And my sister who, who lives where my parents right now, she's been like intentionally active over the past few years of trying to help my parents understand things because they're still too afraid to ask me a question. So they'll ask mm-hmm. her a question. And then if she doesn't have the answer, she'll ask me the question. <laughs> so we have sort of this like network of information going. And because yeah. I have this support now, I'm using it to sort of like mute. I, 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 I don't want to say I don't have a platform, but I don't feel like I have a quote unquote platform. I just kind of like like to use my time and my energies and access to resources that I have. Mm-hmm. And people would say that that is a platform. So if people say that that's a platform, I will honor that. Sure. But I will use basically anything that I have to kind of like channel it back into the community. So like my sisters mm-hmm. and I are now actually I have a call later today with one of them because we're creating resources that will go straight to sick family centers and sort of folks who are working with sick youth around how to ask questions around gender and sexuality to the extent that might be helpful for them because we don't have this language right now. We don't have resources within our community. And, you know, we keep on looking towards other communities of like, look what they have, look what they have. Why Mm -hmm. don't we have that? And I was like, well, we don't have that because we literally just started grassroots organizing maybe a decade or two ago. So you can't really measure where our like pace, but if we want these things to happen, we have to do them. Yeah. So that has sort of been the the journey with understanding my Sikhi and my identity was my Sikhi tells me that I need to act and uplift the oppressed and mm-hmm. think about all the kids who are going through harm right now, particularly within my community, whether it's sexual abuse, queer violence, or you know, state violence in the form of poverty or uh, unlivable wages or anything of that sort. My job is to sort of start creating networks that bring people together, networks of support um, that don't center me, you know, because I don't need aggrandizement. I just want people to be happy. (laughs) That's really beautiful. And I love what you just said about um, it's your Sikhi that tells you that you need to be part of this uplifting of the oppressed. And you named so many different ways that people in our world are oppressed. And it's cool. And again, like, not to compare everything about Sikhi to Christianity and mm-hmm. other faiths, but there is in so many different religions throughout the world, there's there's this beautiful idea that part of what it means to be a person of faith is to uplift the oppressed mm-hmm. um, and to bring justice to the world that so desperately needs justice. Yeah, um, And I think that's so important, especially in the United States, where there is so much xenophobia around any religion that isn't Christianity, but especially religions like Islam and Sikhi, you know, just to mm-hmm. to say to people like, hey, actually, Sikhi is about justice and love. So there's no need to like vilify people for practicing it. Yeah. So, and it's, yeah. I've noticed the most, I, I, I agree that 
I think there's this call to action within a lot of faiths that mm-hmm. are, are based on sort of humanity, yeah. right? In the sense of the betterment of humanity. Um, what I often find is that people will rightly identify these linkages and then unfortunately say that these linkages mean the same thing, mm. mm-hmm. right? So I agree that there are calls within Sikhi and Judaism and Christianity and Islam and so many other faiths, Baha'i and Confucius, Buddhism, all of them. Like there is this call to action this that we live in service. Mm-hmm. And then we don't actually ask the question of, so what does that mean within that faith? Yeah, what does like it mean? why is it there? Why yeah. is it there? How do we actually act on it through mm. that lens rather than picking one lens and then applying that to everyone? else right right this idea of like radical love being the same thing for everyone across the board is Mm. a little ridiculous yeah (laughs) like that's yeah so I I completely agree with you and I think that the second part of the conversation is just as important and unfortunately it doesn't happen as much yeah because people are kind of I think it's a matter of feeling uncomfortable like Mm. when you're in an interfaith conversation you want to scramble for all the ways you're similar to the other people you're afraid to see how things are different but that's where it gets really rich right if we were all if we were all exactly the same it wouldn't be much of a dialogue Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah And and the elephant of the room obviously being within interfaith conversations is that some people do believe that their faith is superior right yeah people do believe that their faith, unless you follow it, you are damned. Yeah, and in some way. that very hard to have a conversation because that's yes. yet again another form of ontological violence mm-hmm. because you are placed as inferior for mm-hmm. not being like them. So those yeah. are also sort of unfortunate things that, you know, I mean, those folks don't usually go to interfaith conversations. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Maybe. to an extent, like, because I'm speaking as a Christian and that's the other thing, right, that in these dialogues, Usually there's a, like a religion that is privileged in the society, and that's usually Christianity, you know, in an interfaith discussion that happens in the U.S. Like when I go to interfaith things as a Christian, like there's sort of this cultural assumption, unfortunately, like, and it's awful and it, it is violent that Christianity is somehow the superior and most correct religion. Yeah. And it has been something, even though I've been interested in interfaith stuff since I was like a little kid. Mm-hmm. It is only in the past few years where I've really unpacked this idea that I have, like, I did have this assumption that, well, Christianity is the most correct. And it's like, after all the conversations I've had, I just don't think that's true anymore. And I'm mm. glad I don't think that's true anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're right. It's, it's very difficult to have a dialogue with other people when there's part of you, even if you don't want to admit it, there's part of you that thinks that they're less correct in some way that that you have all the answers and they don't. Yeah. And you're completely right. Like there's the fear right at the end of the day that what if I'm wrong and actually Mm. I was right originally. And then at the end of days I go up there and then (laughs) God's like, oops, you got it all wrong. And you were, you were on the right path. And then you decided to do this thing. Whoop, like that fear, that existential fear. It's one thing that's very hard for me to communicate for people who aren't of faith that Mm -hmm. like, you know, folks who are not of faith think that that's ridiculous because they, Mm. in their world, there is nothing else. You live here, you die, and it's over. Like, that's Mm -hmm. it. You're a blip of existence, and then you're not. And then maybe one day you're a blip of existence again, and maybe you're not, right? Yeah. That is a very different sort of organization of one's time on the world. 
versus folks who maybe have a story about what happens after our, our end of days, right? Yeah. And trying to figure out what does it mean as we talk when we don't believe the same things literally about this fear that motivates us. Or in some cases, mm-hmm. it's not a fear. It's a, an unyielding belief in one's rightness yeah. and everyone else's wrongness, right? Yeah. And no one wants to name those sorts of things. So I think you're completely right. There is there are these other motivating factors. I would call them cultural factors um, sure. that make these conversations very hard to have. Yeah. Do you have any? And it's a it's interviews are so hard because I might ask a question and you think of an answer way later. But uh, <laughs> off the top of your head, do you sure. have any sort of tips or thoughts on how to cultivate an interfaith dialogue where especially those of us in a privileged religion like Christianity can try to let go of that, those fears and assumptions that are sort of holding us back. Yeah, there's, so there is a line or a whole set of lines like in our scripture, um, in our Guru Granth Sahib that talks about the conquering of fear. Mm. The person who is liberated is the one who fears no one but the but the guru but even then the fear of the guru is not the same as the fear of like oh my gosh you're gonna punch me you're gonna hurt me you're gonna attack me the mm-hmm. fear there is the fear of not being united oh wow yeah it's the fear of our continued separation yeah and i think that is a very fundamentally different orientation or understanding of fear than a lot of other people who when they talk about the existential threat of faiths that we you know what happens at the end of after the end of days. I, I think there's something to be learned there, at least from our faith, where the, the fear is the continued separation. You are already mm. separated, right? The idea is that should you have lived a life, uh, a worthwhile life, whatever that may mean, um, your quote unquote reward is reunion with the Lord. And mm-hmm. in different faiths, that means that like, you know, you Avery, me Prabhdeep, we get to go walk in this like a beautiful area that's hard to imagine as ourselves, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. As Mm -hmm. how we lived. It's like our next stage. We got promoted. Um, (laughs) As individuals, we are. Yeah, yeah. But within Sikhi, and I can only speak from within Sikhi because that's the faith that I practice, Mm -hmm. the fundamental unit of analysis is the individual soul that's been separated from the communal God, Mm -hmm. the communal guru, right? Mm -hmm. So when we quote unquote die, when we're reunited, we return to that oneness. We don't return as individuals into with our guru. We return into that oneness and we gain this higher sense of connectivity with the world and the universe. So in some sense, in thinking about how to how do we learn from other faiths, which I think mm-hmm. is the best way in actually having interfaith conversations, yeah. is that you have to do the homework, right? Just as yeah. we talked about with racial equity, like you did uh, a little bit of background about my faith. And at the same time, you do your homework, but you do your homework with a bit of skepticism. Yeah. Too many times I see well-intentioned folks go do research and then they come to someone who is living the experience. And uh, like, I read. I'm the expert that, now. Right? <laughs> and I think as, and that's both a racial, there's gender dynamics there, yes. there are faith dynamics there, like you noted. Yes. But I think if we're talking about like practical steps, those are two very good ones. Do your homework, but also mm-hmm. do your homework with skepticism yeah. and, and your, humility. And humility. Yeah. Humility is so, so key. Yeah. There's so many faiths and so rarely practiced. <laughs> yeah. 
So those are, I mean, off the top of my head, those are sort of the three main things. I would say humility is, was going to be the third one. So I'm glad you brought it up. Oh, well. sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Beat you to it. We're on the same page with that. Like I, in both my other sort of social justice, liberatory, emancipatory work that I do, mm-hmm. I start from the place. And I don't think enough people start from this place. I don't think it's the only place to start from. So I'm not saying I'm better than other people. But I start from a place of, I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And it sounds very, very straightforward and obvious, but like we do not exist in this world. We, as people with uh, valuable privileges that help them sort of like gain stability in life, mm-hmm. um, gain access to resources that they need, like we don't operate from a place of we don't know everything. Yeah. We operate from a place of I know everything. And, you know, like we come from this sort of like combative origin of engaging with other people and everything is a quote-unquote debate everything is a negotiation right yeah nothing's ever this sense of like i'm learning from you yeah it's always proving that my side is correct which is so different and like part of it is sort of just like i know that i used to do that as well and i noticed a shift in myself where i was like that's not how i want to conduct myself in the world Mm. so i still make like petty shady comments of course (laughs) but like that's not my primary mode of engagement. I don't like mm. talking down to people. I think of, I mean, this partly comes from being sick, but also being an educator or, and also mm. being an educator where mm. I sort of see the role as like, I was given the opportunity to be able to learn. Like yeah. my life is literally, I get paid to learn. So yeah. if I'm not willing to, in certain contexts, consensually share the knowledge, share the educational work, right? That mm-hmm. to me seems unethical. I shouldn't have to teach all the time, obviously, but there are moments in which I should be thinking if someone else is saying something that's incorrect, my answer in some cases or my response shouldn't be, oh my God, you're terrible, you're wrong, how dare you say this? <laughs> it should be, I understand how one, like maybe it's not, I understand how one could come to this position. Maybe it's like, so I hear what you're trying to do. Yeah. I don't think you accomplish it. Like just yeah. today, um, I saw like this this like meme going around among Punjabi and and or Sikh folks because a very famous Muslim actor in India was cast to play a Sikh in an upcoming movie. Mm. And someone commented and they're like, this is, you know, like, it's not okay. Like, could you imagine? And this is the part where it went wrong. Could you imagine if they put a white guy in Black Panther, what would happen, mm. right? And the reason I bring this up is because we don't have a way of expressing, like what I said to them was like, I understand that you want to like identify that this is a problem, but do we always have to use black oppression as the metric for understanding Mm. oppression, right? And this Mm. isn't like a novel realization on my part. I've seen other communities do it time and time again. And I've seen folks critique them and I just started seeing it more and more in my community. And I'm like, this is my responsibility. I have learned. Yeah. It's my role to speak out in some form, even if it's just to a, like a unknown sort of like void out there. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, because someone will see it. Someone will see. It. I learned from the void. So if yes. the void gave me this knowledge, I'm sending it back out into the void. Yeah. Yeah. But like it's those sorts of things where we constantly come at each other from a very combative place that mm-hmm. we don't actually come. We don't start from this. I don't know everything. I mm-hmm. do know these things and maybe they add to this conversation and maybe they'll change your perspective. But like the same thing I tell my students, I was like, I'm not trying to indoctrinate you. You could disagree with everything I've said this semester Mm -hmm. and that's fine. But Mm -hmm. if you understood what I said, that's what I care about. 
I want you to be able to walk away with the information that you have learned from my class this semester to make your own decisions. Because I'm not in the job of creating automatons through my teaching. I want to help people be who they are. And if they end up doing bad things, there are movements, there are responsibilities that we have as communities to make sure that, that you know, we mitigate those sort of structural harms. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it's like this constantly iterative process. And we often, just because of various, you know, we have so many things going on in our lives, it gets very hard to balance these different things. Um, so I think that's another part of all of this conversation is that we have to recognize what is our role in certain movements, in certain conversations. I feel myself to be someone who gets to spend time learning. So I see my role as one of sharing knowledge, not like putting down others' knowledge, but sharing, adding to the conversation. And mm-hmm. someone else will see their role is very different. And we need to be able to understand that difference as like, okay, and not a subpar. Yeah. So you keep mentioning that you're a teacher. You, um, you're a teacher at Brown University, is that right? Um, I'm a student at Brown University, oh, uh, but okay. no, you're totally fine. Um, but this semester, I decided to. Uh, I'm being a just a for one class, a lecturer at a local university that's about 30 minutes away from me. Um, okay. It's in a social science department, but it's a primarily like first gen sort of regional campus, so a very different sort of student population than Brown. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, it's been very, I've loved it. It's, it's like getting to be around folks that like I grew up with. So it's very nice to sort of be back in that space and mm-hmm. be sharing information that I got to learn and say, hey, this is what I learned and speaking yeah. about my experiences as like someone who also had was a first gen experience going into college and saying, hey, like, I remember not knowing how to read an academic paper. Let's mm-hmm. spend some time talking about how to read this academic paper. Here are resources. Here, you know, in class, we'll spend 15 minutes and I'll show you the notes that I took on the reading so that you can sort of see how this works or how it could work, you know? Oh, and- that's so awesome because I feel like most of the time it's assumed that students will just figure it out. Mm-hmm. So it's it's beautiful that you spend the time teaching it. That's something I noticed at my seminary that And like, because I had gone to undergrad as an English major and stuff, and I've just, I've had all the privileges when it comes to my schooling that I knew how to read these scholarly articles that our teachers assigned, but a lot of my classmates didn't come from that same background and they were just kind of left flailing, like. Mm. Yeah, I just think it's important, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, I feel like this might go into sort of the thing you mentioned at the beginning that one of the main things you study is white supremacy in higher education. Yes. Um, so are you ready to sort of dig into that um, yeah. and, and tell the listeners, uh, I wish we had like hours for you to tell me because I'm so intrigued by this, but <laughs> just, I'm sure you've also developed something of a shorter, you know, elevator pitch for it. So what do you want to say about this topic you've been studying? Yeah. The reason I study white supremacy within higher education was in my journey through college, which as we, as a scholar of education, I know exactly, you know, how many people are able to go to the type of college that I went to, mm-hmm. what sort of like predetermines their likelihood of being able to apply and get in. And so I went into college thinking sort of that, you know, you, with the idea of if you work hard, you get the rewards and that's just the way wor- the world works because <laughs> that's what my parents had ingrained in me. So I had yeah, always yeah. Had to, like, kept my head down and I was like, I'll work, I'll work, I'll work. The results will, mm-hmm. you know, they will follow through. Mm-hmm. College is when that all fell apart in some sense at a personal level. 
So I say all of this, or long way around to answer the question, is I went through undergrad and then to my graduate program and now to my doctoral program, constantly thinking about why is it that the same people seem to be struggling? And I refuse to believe that it's because they're deficient. Right. So what is making it so that they are struggling? And as I started unpacking sort of the history of higher education and sort of starting to read what folks were saying about when it, desegregation happened, what the civil rights movement brought, and even pushing further back to sort of like, just as like a, a short factoid. So this is my elevator pitch. The research okay. university, the modern research university emerged at the turn of the 20th century. So that means that 1890s, 1900s, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was right after the failure or the intent, the, the dismantling Mm -hmm. of reconstruction efforts in the U.S. So the research university emerged at the same time that Jim Crow apartheid was being installed in the U.S. Mm. So when I think about how does white supremacy exist within the university, it used to exist in very overt ways of excluding people because of their identity. Yes. With the shift of desegregation movements throughout the mid-20th century, and then with the civil rights movement being successful in sort of undoing a lot of at least the legal uh, segregation and oppression, though we know that that didn't obviously fix all the problems, mm -hmm. you saw a change in how that sort of white supremacy-based exclusion had to shift. It had to change the way that it was able to maintain the same power that it always had, but now had to include new people. So what I study with white supremacy within higher education is what are those quote unquote soft ideas that do incredible harm, incredible structural harm, and who are the people that operationalize it? Who are the people that it is embodied within enact the most harm, whether they're doing it intentionally or not? Yeah. So that's sort of the things that I study within the university in higher education. That's very cool, and I think so needed. Um, one thing I remember from being in seminary is that, um, so my seminary, like in the past, I don't know, let's say decade, has been working really hard to improve, like, its racism issues, you know, because mm -hmm. all seminaries, all schools have this racism issue where mostly white people get in and succeed and stuff. Mm -hmm. like, you, like you just said, the school has been working on making it a more a better environment for people of color students of color and teachers of color to thrive um, and yeah. have the same kind of support and I feel like as a white person I've been so ignorant and oblivious to these things um, because I've I would hear um, black classmates say things like how even with all these efforts the schools set up the way like the syllabi are arranged and stuff is still so like white like it's mm. still it's still a white um, setup, the way, like, what they're expected to do for essays and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, like, it's shameful for me to admit, but, like, it's very true. I never would have known that the way grad schools are set up is in a way that helps me thrive while sort of setting them up to fail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and so it's really cool that you're doing that work and I'm glad like my seminary keeps doing that work we just um last year um our old white man president finally retired he was awful he was super like queer phobic too it was awful oh, and yeah. now we have a black president who is he's very queer friendly he's very willing to talk about disability issues I love him so much yeah. um I'm I'm sad I graduated before he really got going but oh it gives me so much hope for the school that hopefully like the work you do that they'll 
keep on making the school better when it comes to the racism issues and other issues. No, I'm so glad to hear that. And I think just to highlight sort of what you're saying, and thank you for sharing too, like, it's not easy to say that, like, you know, like, I'm not trying to like pat you on the back or anything. (laughs) These are sort of like, people have to, like, you're modeling sort of what people have to say. People are so afraid of just doing what you just did. Because again, they, we start from a place of, I know things you don't Mm. rather than I don't know yeah. everything. Yeah. Right? I don't have a racist bone in my body. Exactly. Like, mm, and yeah. that thing is that because, and it was intentional, like our education system does not teach us what white supremacy looks like right. both overtly and covertly. It doesn't yeah. teach us how to identify decisions or policies or practices that uphold exploitation and exclusion. Yeah. So I don't, I'm never surprised when 18 year olds are like, oh, I didn't know Christopher Columbus was bad. I'm bad. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. like, I'm not surprised, you yeah. know? In California, you do a mission project in fourth grade where you make a model of the Spanish missions that used to oh, be there no. or are still there. Yeah. And like, yes, you and I can go like, oh no, oh my gosh. But for a fourth grader in California, based off what they're taught, if yeah. they don't have any other context, any other community member that kind of like puts a pause or like raises a hand on that, again, like you said, it becomes the script, it becomes yeah. the unquestioned script because we don't know better. Or if we do know better, some people actually support it, you know? And we end up in these very like circular issues. Yeah. Yeah. It's all too easy to just be racist in this country, especially when you're white, like, unless you're willing to listen, like, it would be way easier for me to just not know these things. Like, and Mm -hmm. like, it's easier for men to be sexist. It's easier for straight people to be homophobic than it is to actually listen and do the work and not get defensive. Yeah. Yeah. We're not taught intimacy where it's villainized. It's considered weak. It's feminized, mm. right? Oh, yes. Um, so yeah. Intimacy is never a thing that like is that's I mean, that's why so many people talk about sort of the issue around incels, particularly with white boys, right? <laughs> yeah. Is it this yeah. idea of like social exclusion? They don't have access to people. And that doesn't mean mm. that like no person is owed someone else's company, right? Yeah. yeah. And at the same time, we we are social beings. So we may, we don't all yeah. need the same level of social activity. We don't, you know, but yeah. to some degree, we whatever social means to us, we do need access to it. So if people mm. don't have access to it, that is going to make them precarious to other sort of uh, uh, oppressive and exploitative movements, which is what we see happening with the, the um, radicalization of all types of people, both in the oh, US wow. and yeah. both globally, you know? And yeah. it, it does come back to this place of like, we don't know how to be human with each other. And yeah. that was an intentional product of colonialism. It was yeah. to say that certain ways of being human were incorrect and other ways of being human were superior and the only way. And we haven't had a reckoning where we talk about, or not enough of a reckoning, where when we're talking about racism and racist actions, we are talking about dehumanization. We're saying there's an idea in your being, in the way that you exist in the world, that says that certain people are not worthwhile. Mm. And yeah. that is not something that, pe- that's the whole like racist bone in the body. Like th- Because it goes down that path, we mm. don't have a conversation about like, the reason be- racism is bad is because it's dehumanizing. Yeah, It treats humans the way they should not be treated. Mm-hmm. And when we enact racism individually, structurally, at some other level, we are continuing that legacy. We are continuing that dehumanization. Mm-hmm. And unless we're willing to name it as dehumanization, racism just becomes this like abstract idea 
of like, oh, it's just over there. It's not me. Tech. Let me elect the legislators. That'll change the policy. And that's it. And it's like, mm. that is but one part of it, right? Mm. We had a nation built off of uh, white supremacy and the dis- dispossession of ind- indigenous people here. So this yeah. idea of we can just like snap our fingers and think differently and all of that harm from hundreds of years just disappears is, it's ridiculous. It's a little farcical. Um, yeah. But it's also intentional. It was produced to be this way. This moment is not an accident. Yeah. yeah. Which is why the focus on identifying who isn't isn't a racist <laughs> is such a red herring. It's intentionally yes. meant yes. to make it so that we don't talk about things. Identify mm. racist because it's like important. But if that's the only thing you're doing, yeah. like that's that's not liberatory in itself. It is yeah. what part of it. <laughs> Yeah, and for sure, like, if I'm able to say that person over there is a racist and they can never change and I hate them and exclude them on site, while I am not a racist, of course, so I'm perfect as I am and don't need to learn. Like, that, yeah. I feel like that's what it becomes. It becomes a binary. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we are running out of time. Yes. So <laughs> I do have one more question on the line of, like, colonialism and stuff. Yes, please. Um, um, so you mentioned this idea of, like, that, you know, colonialism is still going on. We're not post-colonial. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about what that has to do with race, which is so important. But I was also wondering if you have any thoughts on the Western gender binary. Um, mm-hmm. um, so gender and like, you know, trans stuff that has to do with this colonialism. Um, yeah. And um, whether it's within, within Sikhi, where um, you said it's like queerness is taboo if you have researched ever like the history has it always been that way mm-hmm. um or is that a product of colonialism anything like that that you might have to share yeah so i mean when so when i talk about colonialism i'm talking about sort of what emerged from uh through the original expo- exploration that happened in the 1400s right where mm-hmm. um the folks in Europe decided to go into South America and Central America, and they didn't know that's where they were. That that, that was where they were going, but yeah. that's where they ended up. And yeah. that um, quote unquote fateful meeting and everything that came after that is what I mean by colonialism. Mm-hmm. And so there are different forms of it, as people who study colonialism will tell you. There's the kind where the folks over there will rule over the people over here, which is what the UK did with India, for example, right? Yeah. Or what the British did with the original colonies. Uh, but what's different about the UK and the original colonies was that they sent the colonialists here to make this place their home, right? right. Which, yeah. And that's what settler colonialism is. It's turning the colony into home. And the, if you think about it just from like a practical standpoint, if you're trying to take over someone's home, like you walk into someone's house and you want to claim their house, what are sort of the things that you have to do in order to claim the house? You have to get rid of the people who yeah. live there. You have to get rid of the people around you who may say that they live there and that would dispute your claim, right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. have to get rid, you have to get a hold of all the quote unquote legal or technical things that give you the authority to have that place. And if those things don't exist, you have to create the yeah, you make them that gives you the power yeah. to make those distinctions, right? And yeah. that's that's what's part of settler colonialism. So when I think about all of that in terms of sort of like the gender binary, the way I often think about it, and I don't like to, I don't want to overly determine colonialism's impact on everything. There are tons of other things also going on that interacted with colonialism that 
brought us to where we are today. Mm-hmm. But when I think about the gender binary and colonialism, what I think about in this particular case is this is European colonialism. This is British, this is Spanish, Portuguese, this is Italian, um, you know, Dutch colonialism. What all of these mean in terms of the binary is that the UK had a sort of very, um, if you read Cedric Robinson and sort of black Marxisms, what you see is that the idea of race, people say that it emerged, you know, after capitalism um, as a result of industrial expansion. And it's like a modern phenomenon. But what Cedric Robinson goes back and says is like this idea of race was actually already within these areas that we now call Europe. Europe was constructed as an idea in our mind because it used to be the Spanish. It used to be the English. It used to be, you know, the Roma. It used to be all these other people and cultures and communities that used to exist there. But now, even in our conversation, I refer to it as Europe. So what Cedric Robinson unpacks is Europe, quote unquote, was created so that it could exist in the minds of other people as this like very powerful force. And mm. they use this logic of race that was internal to these countries, you know, to say that these cultures within what we now call Europe were better or worse than the others. Mm-hmm. So this logic of hierarchy has been there before colonialism, but what was important about through colonialism, what happened was that it exported that logic of human hierarchy into communities that it wasn't appropriate. I mean, it wasn't appropriate within the European countries anyway, but Mm -hmm. they went off into people that were literally not like them in a lot of ways, culturally, epistemologically, cosmologically, in terms of like what they believe their relationship to the earth and the universe and the world was. Mm -hmm. Like these differences made them seem inferior. And one thing that was very important, and I think that it actually all comes down to property in a lot of ways, is the only way that folks could ultimately claim land from other folks was if they had a family to continue that progeny. So this idea of patriarchy or the system of patriarchy and misogyny that requires male control over the female as a form of property and as Mm. a way to inherit the marriage property, right? That's how I think about in the sense of like exporting this idea of the gender binary. Mm -hmm. That's me within colonialism. It was about the control of these other areas and it was using women because they had already been perceived as property in, in like and, and not in the way of chattel slavery, but in the sense of like, you know, they did marriages across families and the woman would never get any of the inheritance and it would go yeah. to the husband and things of that sort. So it was sort of like, how do we eat up the rest of the world? And one mm-hmm. way to do that is that we need to have this clearly defined way of saying, who are the men who have the power and who are the women who are meant to be controlled? Yeah. So when I think about the gender binary in other places where this idea of property was not the fundamental way of understanding the world the way that it was for these colonialists Mm -hmm. they needed to enforce this ideology because that's the only way that they could then take away land from them (laughs) so i always bring this back with these conversations about gender and sexuality i uh which might be a controversial opinion but like (laughs) it's very hard for me like i know that we as a quote-unquote movement have decided to separate these two things but Mm -hmm. as someone who does not come from a culture that's based in western imperialism the separation isn't something that's actually real for me like my gender and my sexuality overlap in a lot of ways because I'm already deemed as non-conforming because of my beard my star and the way that I exist the fact that I put on eyeliner or wear what looks like a dress to other people but to me looks like a corta which is just a casual shirt that we would wear Mm -hmm. like it's interesting that I have these experiences because I'm like I've already been 
like non-binary just by existing as a sick and being queer. Mm. So my gender was already determined. But the mm-hmm. fact that now I'm performing in a way that's legible to Western epistemologies of queerness, now all of a sudden I'm non-binary, right? Now I'm legitimately non-binary because I yeah. And it's like, I, I, the reason I bring that up in the context of this is like the idea that we have to pre- continue to perform and make real our, our identities to others, to me is still linked with this project of figuring out who is a good human and that can be, that deserves power and who are the ones that are supposed to be controlled, right? So it's just this like very circular, very like continued history of trying to make, sh- name the people that need to be controlled and name the mm-hmm. people who deserve the ability to control. Wow. That's how I think about the gender binary in the context of colonialism, because it ties together with, you know, like imagine with queerness, like how Mm -hmm. does a male pass on his property if his daughter is a lesbian? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And if he doesn't have a male to, you know, inherit it, he can't. Mm -hmm. And his family dies. So what is he going to do? He's going to make sure that his lesbian daughter marries a man. Yeah. So it's like, I, I, I never want to like separate these things because now when you have conversations about quote unquote radical feminists trying to say that trans women are not women right, and like yeah. engage with this right wing discourse, th- they're recreating this legacy. And like, unless we see the way that gender construction as a form of property as like the black radical tradition or as really amazing, you know, uh, black feminist theorists have shown Mm -hmm. how women are used as a way to control people and Mm -hmm. they're constructed, their gender is constructed in order to do this. And you see this most clearly in chattel slavery in the U.S. If you don't start from the place of why, why do quote unquote, these identities, these categories exist, we then have to end up reinserting histories. But if we start from the point of why do these categories exist, we can actually use the histories to guide and understand the trajectory that we're on. Wow. I feel like I just got like my mind blown like 50 times. Oh, so <laughs> <amazing. good> you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. And again, it starts from this place of I don't know everything. Yeah. We go learn. Yeah. And that's Especially... why I know these things. <laughs> Yeah, like you've dedicated so much of your time to studying this stuff. Mm-hmm. And like you said, then also to teaching it, which is wonderful. Yeah, you have to, you got to do it. You gotta, if you're collecting things, you got to share them. Otherwise, yes. it's resource hoarding. Yeah, like what's the point if it's all in your head and not being given to others, especially to other people who might not have the time and resources to do this, these deep studies. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, you're completely right. So that's my short sort of statement about colonialism and the gender yeah. binary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. So my closing question is usually just the simple question of, do you have any last words of wisdom for um, trans people in general? For all of us. Huh. This will air when it airs, but Trans Day of Remembrance was so recently yes. um, from when this was recorded. So on my mind, there was an article done by Raquel Willis and it was published in Out magazine online and it was documenting uh, the high amount of trans women of color who had been persecuted by the state this year. And what was important about this, unlike other other sort of uh, Remembrance Day statements, was that these uh, the, the project was about giving these trans women the obituaries they deserved. Mm. And it's been on my mind, which is why I bring it up now, 
because I was looking at an interview earlier today and I can't remember her name, uh, but she was, it was a black trans woman and she was on some like relatively important, like mainstream, like news show. And she was saying that trans day of remembrance, we're taking it back. Mm. And what we mean by that is we have used it as a way in the past to remember and commemorate and honor our lost family or, Mm. you know, our family that's no longer with us now. But now we are using it to demand action from you all. We are not using it as a place to simply like commemorate and heal. We are doing that. But now Mm -hmm. you don't get to take part in that. That is our work. Your work is supposed to be making it so that we never have to have to have this conversation of how X people have died, X plus one have Mm -hmm. died. And this is what she was saying in this interview. And so I guess my word of advice is her, is sort of like inspired by her word. And it's, we are inherently valuable because we exist. People say that we do not have value because they have yet to find the value in themselves. And it's Mm. easier for them to put us down rather than uplift themselves. Mm. Because, right, there's that one Toni Morrison quote about this. Do you feel better by pushing me down? And I think that would be my word of advice is, we are already far higher than everyone else. (laughs) And their desire to pull us down is their desire that will ultimately fail. And that's my Mm -hmm. word of advice, is remember the worth that we already have and the value we already have through our ancestors, if not through ourselves. Yeah. Listeners, I hope that you were as enriched as I was by Pravdeep's conversation. If you were, or if you find any of my work worthwhile, I would greatly appreciate your support so that I can keep on spotlighting trans and non-binary folks here. You can help me out by liking and reviewing this podcast, telling friends to give it a listen, sharing it on social media, or by sending some financial help my way. Check out my Ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash queerlychristian to send a few dollars my way just once. Or if you'd like to support me on a monthly basis, go to patreon.com slash queerlychristian to set that up. Patrons who support me at the $12 level or higher get a special shout out every episode for being so wonderful. Remy Page, Ron Hartzler, Willow Hoving, and Jay Gebner, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your generosity really does mean the world to me. That's it for this episode. If you have any questions or comments, or if you are a trans person who's interested in being interviewed for this show, email me at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com. Happy New Year to all of you. If you celebrated a holiday this past month, I hope that it was a time of joy and community for you. If you felt any pain or isolation, I pray that you find healing and solidarity in this coming month. As we enter 2020, we'll break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life.